We are in part two of a series where we're talking um, and we're leading towards vision. And today I want to tell you exactly where I'm going from the jump, which is that I want to connect um, what we talked about last week in the gospel to this week in the Christian life. But I want to do so in a little bit of a different way that hopefully, um, hopefully it makes sense uh, in, in a way that actually creates and causes both um, change in our life and change in our hearts and in our minds. Um, in the video, they were talking about responsibility, and it's one of those things that happens every year at the beginning of the year is that we all decide to take on a new set of responsibilities, a new set of actions, a new set of decisions that we make. Um, and those decisions for all of us might be different, but they probably revolve somewhere around our health, um, maybe around our wealth, uh, maybe around our wisdom, our career path, maybe around spirituality. And you've been tracking with Jesus with 21 days in the word. But what happens inevitably, and it happens to all of us, is we start to start off with some kind of lofty expectations. And as the year goes, really, <laughs> as the week goes, uh, maybe as the month goes, as a little bit of time goes by, what ends up happening is, is it kind of just dissipates. And that's not brand new news to anybody. But today I want to talk about why. I want to talk about why. Because I think the reason why those things don't take is the same reason why for many of us, there are things that we've wanted to get better at spiritually or in a spiritual context, and it just hasn't taken yet. Right? Like you've been wanting to get in shape for like 10 years now, or if you're like, you know, 20, then for like three years now, right? But like, because before that you were just like, you know, teenager and then you hit puberty and then all of a sudden you're like, oh, I have a body. I didn't work for it. Very cool, right? You just kind of grew up. And then at the same time, you know, uh, you might have some, some beliefs about, about our thoughts and what you want to do and who you want to be physically or you want to be intellectually or spiritually. But we tend to make about the same amount of progress spiritually as we do in those other areas. In other words, Many of us have been thinking every January, I want to get better at being in shape. I want to work out more regularly. And many of us thought in January, I want to pray more. I want to read my Bible more consistently. I want to be more others-focused and more selfless. And what happens, what happens, and it happens inevitably to all of us, is, is we make about the same amount of progress oftentimes spiritually as we do in these other areas that seem weirdly difficult for us to maintain. And I want to talk about why, because what's interesting is um, there's a book recently, and you might have heard about it, called Atomic Habits. Anybody, can we just do a quick show of hands for everybody who's like a thought leader in here who has anybody read Atomic Habits? Okay, you should. It's a very good book. And what I think is the most fascinating part about that book and what we're going to read today is basically is, is exactly what Paul said a couple thousand years ago. But <clears throat> go with me for a second. If you think about, if you think about what happens in life, we all have this, this set of outcomes, right? And the outcomes or the less desirable outcomes are what create what we hope to be a new set of decisions. <clears throat> For instance, um, <clears throat> I feel like we don't have enough money at the end of the month. I feel like we don't have enough margin at the end of the month. I feel like we don't have enough to put into savings. I feel like we don't have enough to invest. And so we need to make some different financial decisions. Or we don't have any at the end of the month. We are living off more than we're making. And so we need to decide to live off less. And so what we do is we decide, I'm going to make some new decisions. But the reason those decisions oftentimes don't work is because we don't really examine what happens before that which is that almost all of our decisions are based on beliefs. And we have the same beliefs, try to change our decisions, and are surprised we're making the same types of decisions with the same outcomes. So let me give you an example of this. <clears throat> and again, financially, we'll just go with that one because that's what we've been talking about so far, though we'll, we'll cover a couple others. 
Financially, um, this is what many of us have a belief around. Um, more makes me more happy. More makes me more happy. Now, you might not have said this out loud, but this is for those of you who are, who, who are you know, maybe Christians or maybe you've been on a mission trip, and you came back and you were, you were, you were shocked, you were surprised, you were amazed, and it happens every time. I used to take high school students all the time. We would go to Costa Rica. We would go work in some places that, that were facing real poverty, and, and it was really difficult in their context, and they would come back, and they'd say, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. They had nothing, but they were still so happy. And here's what they never realized. That's because I thought more would make me more happy. And so I see someone, when I see somebody that has nothing and they're still happy, I'm like, how does that make sense? Well, it's because perhaps our belief was wrong. But the problem is, as long as more makes me more happy, or for some of us, newer makes me more happy, or for being really honest, a lot of times it's not more or newer, it's just more or newer than you. Right? Like you were fine with the trip that you went on until you saw somebody go on a better trip. Lindsay and I, just this weekend, we went to, well, this weekend, this is still the weekend. Um, we went over Friday. We celebrated our 11th year uh, anniversary yesterday. Thank you. Thank you. Some of you should be more excited than that than you are. Um, but when you get married, you'll be like, oh, that's actually a big deal. So we celebrated that. Now, I don't know if you know this, but Jeff and Sarah Kerwin are about to celebrate their 10th anniversary, and they're going to Sandals, Jamaica. I'm like, Jeff, you work for the state, bro. Like, you know, I run a company, I'm going to Amelia Island, right? You're, you're going to say, like, all-inclusive, right? Like, mine is great. I'm like, oh, that's awesome. And, then, and, and you guys, you're like, oh, man, I wish I could go to Amelia Island. But when y'all heard Jeff is going to Sandals, which I don't even know who's cool with me sharing that, but, like, <laughs> when we hear that, I'm like, I'm like oh, I want to go, you know? When, and, and, and here's what happens, right? Is my belief system about money more newer or more and newer than you were makes me happy and so I make decisions and if any kind of financial decision change I make I'm actually fighting against my core belief which makes that decision really really difficult to be sustainable this is why we talked about and we talked we had a relationship series a couple weeks ago or a couple months ago maybe it was in the spring semester so I always lose track of that stuff my chronology is horrid but where we said the series was titled are you the one are you the one? Are you the one? Not saying, are you the one? Are you the one that I'm looking for? Saying, here's, here's, here's really what determines relational happiness. Not finding the right one, but being the right one. That we're more concerned with the person that we're looking for, but we're never really concerned, are we the person that we're looking for is looking for? Because if I was that person, and if I am a healthy person, healthy people generally attract healthy people in the way, the best way to have a healthy marriage is not to make sure I pick the right one, but to make sure I am the right one. And so we make different relational decisions about the places to find the right one, never realizing that our belief is wrong about what makes a happy marriage. It's more important for me to be healthy than to tell you why you're not. And what's fascinating is Paul is talking to the church at Philippi. He's talking to the church at Philippi, and he gives them something to do. He gives them a responsibility. If this was the new year, this would be a responsibility that would be so wildly unattainable. I mean, the thing that he says, and sometimes you read the Bible and you think, okay, he can't actually mean that. It's just unsustainable. It's crazy. 
but he does. Now, it's in the context, and in their context, Paul, church at Philippi, um, if you don't know about Paul, Paul, this is in the New Testament, this is Jesus and beyond, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the four stories of Jesus' life, the New Testament is the new covenant, is the new relationship, basically Jesus and beyond. After the four accounts of Jesus' life, there's kind of the story of the early church in the book of Acts. And then there's a series of letters that were written to churches regarding how do we now live in light of this person of Jesus? How do we now live in light of this sense of grace? How do we now live in light of the cross? How do we now live in light of of faith and reconciliation with God? Well, there was Jews and there was Gentiles. Jews, people of God, history of God, lineage of God, Gentiles, everybody else. And when they came together, there was naturally a ton of conflict. Because this was very much, if you were to mix almost a mixture of of religious differences coming together, ethnicities, nationalities all coming together now, that formerly they were just very oppositional to one another, and now they're in the same, so there's naturally going to be a ton of conflict, because they have totally different bases for the places and spaces that are coming from in their context. So when they came together, the church was full of conflict. How do these Jews and how do these Gentiles and how do these people now get along? Well, so Paul speaks to them. And he says a number of different things along the lines of like, you know, if there's any any unity among you, any encouragement among you, then then be like-minded in your love for one another. And then in 2, chapter 2, verse 3, he says one of, I think, the most challenging things. Speaking to a thing of conflict, but then speaking to how we ought to live. Philippians 2.3 says this, So do nothing from selfish ambition. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, I want you to count others as more significant for yourself, than yourselves. In other words, Paul's saying, okay, let me give you a new New Year's resolution. Here's what I want you to do. I don't want you to do a single thing out of self. I don't want you to do a single thing out of this selfish ambition. I don't want you to do a single thing because it solely benefits you and it's all about you and it's for you. He says, I don't want you to do anything out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, here's what I want you to do. I want you to consider every other person better than yourself. You know what I know about almost every one of us that walked into this building this morning? We were more concerned with how we looked than how the other person looked. Like, I don't know anybody who's just like walking in, like, just like looking just like totally disheveled. And they're like, oh, I just care about how you look. I just care about how you look. I just care about how you look, right? Like, we care about ourselves. But Paul is saying here, hey, 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 here's a new behavioral pattern for you, Christians. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you've given your life to Jesus, and if you're not a follower of Jesus, this is going to be really, really difficult to do because the motivation structure is going to be different. But he says, I want you to do nothing out of selfish ambition. I want every single room that you ever walk into, when you walk into that meeting on Monday, when you walk into that class on Monday, when you walk into the living room on Monday and your family is gathered together, when you walk and your roommates are there, when you're walking onto your team or your fraternity or your sorority or your middle school, your high school, and you walk into the class, I want you, every single room that you ever walk into, to look and say, every person here is someone that I'll serve. Every single person here, I'm going to look at as someone better than myself. And he kind of defines that a little bit and says, let me just put not the conceptual, but let me put the action behind it in the next verse. Verse four. 
He said, let each of you look not only to his own interests, he says, but also to the interests of others. Let me just ask, so far today, have you been more interested in yourself or the people around you? And that's all of us. That's, this is incredibly difficult. In fact, if this was a new behavioral pattern, this is, this is tough. And what I've found in the, in the kind of the Christian spaces is we're really, really streaky at this. Um, we love others' focusedness when it comes to uh, primarily events, right? Like we love to, to get together and to do the thing. We love to serve on the Sunday morning with the neighbor's team. We love to get together at Project Tallahassee and serve the community around us in once a month. And man, I feel good because I did that because I served. No, 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 that's not what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, man, a life of this, a life of this, a life of this, a life of every single person that you walk into or every single you know, place that you walk into, these people are better than you. Or at least that you're there to serve them in humility. And something about that grates against us, but kind of here's what that looks like. I was talking to Lindsay about this last night as we were driving home. And just kind of the things that I've started to incorporate behavioral. This is like, this is like you get up in the morning and you decide, you know what? Neither one of us wants to make coffee in the morning, so I'm going to make coffee in the morning. And then I'm going to go get that coffee. And then I, I know that I frankly don't care about a coffee mug because a coffee mug's a coffee mug. But I know that she has a preferred coffee mug. And whether or not she actually ever knows that I'm going to get her the preferred coffee mug or not, I'm going to get her the preferred coffee mug. And by the way, when I make dinner, I'm going to think, what do you want? What do, I, what do I want? And when I'm putting both dinners on both plates, I'm going to think, I'm going to give you the cleaner plate, not me the cleaner plate. And when I go to the restaurant, I'm going to say, not just, you know, on my way in, I'm going to say, is there anybody coming in or coming out that I can hold the door for? I'm also going to say, as I'm sitting down to get my, you know, uh, as I'm eating and I'm, I'm going to go get up and go get a drink, I'm saying, hey, do you need anything to drink? Do you guys need a napkin? Anybody need anything when I'm up? It's not like this crazy big thing, but then it's like, and, and if you're working, maybe, maybe you're working, I love this, the, the Chick-fil-A, right? Because that's God's, you know, meat besides registered sausage, obviously. But you're just like, man, my pleasure, my pleasure, my pleasure. And you're like, is that selfish? No, it's my pleasure to serve you, right? And so there's just like, let me, let me throw in some extra napkins just in case. I know most people give two ketchups. I'm giving three because your boy is others focused, right? Like, like, oh, Chick-fil-A sauce, would you like Polynesian? My pleasure. Here's two straws, right? Like, like you're just, you're going in for this. And I'm telling you, here, here, here's what we here's what you know. You've seen people like this. When someone walks in the room and they're not a chair, they're the first person to get up and try to offer somebody else a chair. You've seen people like this where it seems like they're constantly loving and constantly serving. And here's what you and I probably both thought. I could never do that. But here's, here's the call of Paul on the Christian life to not say this is the idealized view of what we are to look like in normalcy, but this is to be our regularity. Let me just pause and say this. If you're here and you're not a Christian, or if you're here and you're not sure if you're a Christian, because you're, you, you've been through some church, you've been through some stuff, you've seen the, 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 the Sunday school and you've seen the sermon and you just, it just, you just didn't take with you or you experienced some Christians along the way and they just seem so self-focused. If you're in here and you're not a good Christian or you're wrestling with the idea of Christianity, wouldn't you just, I mean, if Christians just did this, wouldn't you just think differently? about Christians? Wouldn't you think differently about Jesus and about God and about the Bible? But again, for us as Christians, it's tough. 
Because, I mean, you talk about a new behavioral pattern. You talk about a new set of responsibilities. It's easy to go to the gym because that's only like 45 minutes. But you're talking about every single thing I do, every single place I go, I'm looking not only to my interests, but I'm looking out for you. I can, in humility, consider your thoughts, your wants, your needs as more significant than mine. I mean, that just sounds so idealistic. And the very next thing Paul says, I think is why we know that Paul was not just offering an ideal, but offering a reality. Because this is what he says. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, I like the way the NIV, because this sentence is interesting, because it basically both says that, that this mindset is yours, but that this mindset is yours, and it's accessible to you because it was the mindset of Jesus. This is why NIV says it. It says, in your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Now, that's huge, because what he's saying here is, I don't want you to just simply have the same behavioral pattern as Jesus did. Yeah, that's good. But what's better than the behavioral pattern, what's better than the decisions and the outcomes that we have in life is actually a shift in your mindset. It's actually a, actually a shift in the framework of how we view and how we see things. Now, before I tell you what he's going to say next, I just think this is so important because oftentimes when we think of things, and it's like, okay, well, that's good in the spiritual world, but that doesn't really like, work in the practical world. This absolutely works in the practical world. This is the difference. This is the difference, the mindset shift of what he's saying. He says, I want you to have the same mindset. I want you to have the same mental framework. In essence, I want you to take on the identity of Jesus so that you begin to see things through the mental framework that Jesus sees things through. A shift in identity in the behavioral patterns and the decision-making is, is, makes total sense. This is the difference between someone who says, I run, and someone who says, I'm a runner. When you're somebody who's like running because you know it's good and you know it's healthy and you know it's what you ought to do, well, it's going to be a struggle because consistently you don't want to because that's not who you are. But if you are a runner, and that's what you do, I mean, y'all are weird. To be honest, y'all feel bad if you don't run. I feel horrible if I do run. Think about that. There are things that people look at you and they say, how do you do that all the time? And you say, I wouldn't feel like myself if I didn't. You want to know why? Your identity, your mental framework, your belief system about who you are, what makes you happy, what brings you joy has shifted. And because of that, your decisions, you're not deciding to run. You have to decide not to run. And so the outcome is you're in shape. So what Paul's saying here is there's an identity shift. There's a framework shift. Instead of having the normal mindset, which is what, what I want, I get, that I have to look out for me, and that, and that if I don't look out for me, nobody else is going to look out for me, and that, that I need to live in some kind of a harmonious way with other people, but I also need to make sure that as, as former you know, philosophers would say, there's something inside of me that's a will to power. There's a will to triumph. There's a will to overcome. There's a will to be better and bigger and stronger and faster and more wealthy and more brilliant and more smart and have a higher SAT score and get into a better job and have a better, there's something inside of all of us. 
He's saying, but what if there was a mindset shift? And what if this was the shift? What if it was the same of Christ Jesus? And then he just roots it deep into the gospel. He says, who though he was in the form of God. Now form is not necessarily like the bodily form. This, this little Greek word, that's kind of how we get the word morph, is, is the inner essence expressing itself in kind of an outer reality. So he's saying, okay, so though he was in essence God, equal with God, God in and of himself, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. That's an odd statement. But here's what he's saying. He didn't hold on to his divinity as a substantiation to us as humanity. That's also still a little bit muddy, so let me say it a little bit different. He didn't pull the God card. He didn't say, in order to prove who I am, here's what I'm going to do. I am going to come down with the angels. I'm floating. My, my, my feet aren't even touching the ground, right? Like, I don't even need sandals because I don't even need my air Jesuses, right? Because I'm just floating, and I'm zapping people with lightning bolts as I come through, and I'm proving to all who are concerned, I am God. He said, no, he didn't leverage his God card. Instead, he did the opposite. He didn't leverage his position, but he did the opposite. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Did you know that that's a very kind way to say it? The, the real meaning in this is bondservant, doulos, if anybody's in the, that Greek ministry. By the way, that's kind of where that name comes from, bondservant. You know what that means? It says the Son of Man did not consider that he would take his divinity and leverage it over us. You know what he did instead? He became a slave. It's exactly what Jesus became. Not just divinity becoming humanity, divinity becoming humanity, but being at the very essence of what people would look at in their context as the lowest amongst people. He was being born in the likeness of men. Being found in human form. Here's what he did. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He's saying... Not only, not only did Jesus in his divinity become humanity, but he entered into slavery. He not only entered into slavery, but he became obedient, and not just obedient to God the Father to the point of when it benefited him, but to the point of death, to the point of when he would die, even to them, death on a cross. Now again, for us, we got a cross hanging up there that some people worked on the other day. It's pretty cool, isn't it? Everybody, can we give a shout out? It's one of the, I thought I was hyped about that. Dylan, B. Ross, William, some other folks did that. But what he's saying here is, in, in, in our culture, having a cross around your neck is kind of like a, it's a, it's a socially good thing. Did you know that the, that the cross was so gross and gruesome and such a shameful thing that for a few hundred years after the Romans stopped using the cross, nobody even painted one? Because why would you depict something so horrific? And he looks at him. He says, you remember how the Romans do this thing where they hang somebody? 
And the reason they hang them isn't because it's the most efficient way to die. It's because it's one of the more painful ways to die. And not just one of the most painful ways to die. It's a public way to die so that everybody who walks by that person and sees that cross, when they see that cross and that person hanging on that cross, they would think, I can't believe that person did something that would put them up there. I never want to be like that person. That was the point of the cross. To induce so much pain and shame that everyone who walked by would say, I will never do what he did. And Paul's saying, if you have given your life to Jesus, if you read Galatians chapter 2 this week and said, where it says that I have been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I that live, but he that lives in me. Ephesians talks about how we are a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come means that you've taken on this new identity. And he says, so let me tell you what this identity is and where this identity is. This is the identity of Jesus. And the identity of Jesus is one who did not leverage his privilege, though he could have. He was one who did not say, I'm going to come down and I'm going to do this in a way that everybody's going to know I'm God. In fact, I'm going to do the opposite. I'm going to come down and I'm going to serve. And I'm going to become humble. Or he was humble. It became obedient. You know, the opposite narrative of a life of selflessness for others is a life for self, and it takes humility to not do that. And you might think, well, I've got some power, and I've got some wealth, and I've got some you know, stuff. And that's great. Did you know we will never understand how deep, how significant of a downgrade it was because we can't conceptualize God. If we don't know what it's like to be equal with God, we will never understand the gap of what it was like for God to become equal with us. And to be enslaved for us, to serve us, and to die for us. And he says, therefore God exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now let me, let me tie a couple things up together here. What Paul's arguing for is not just that we start to be more selfless, it's that we see the selflessness of Jesus and we say, his spirit is now living inside of me. And so I am not going to operate out of, the, out of the basis, out of the belief system, out of the desire of self. What I'm going to do is I'm going to look at Jesus and I'm going to say, if he was selfless, if he served, if he viewed that the way and the reason and the purpose and the joy that he felt on this earth, if, if he had all those things, saw all those things, knew all those things, the way that he accomplished those things was on the focus of other people, not on the focus of himself. And so I am going to start believing that I don't serve out of responsibility. I don't serve because I made a decision to serve. I serve because that's who I am. I'm a servant. What if, what if, what if when we read that list, it wasn't something that we looked at and said, man, like, I got to do nothing out of selfish ambition, nothing out of vacancy and humility. I have to consider others better than myself. Like, all the time, nothing do for self. And I need to not only look to my own interest, but to the interest of others. And that sounds impossible. 
unless you are the type of person that says the way that I actually find life, the way that I actually enjoy myself and enjoy God and enjoy others is through honoring God, glorifying God by loving and serving other people. Let me, let me put a couple of verses together that kind of put this whole thing framework together. That kind of is how I constructed this thought and this belief system. Number one, Jesus said this, John 10, 10, I have come that you may have life and have it more abundantly, have it to the full. Jesus said this, he said, whoever wants to find life, wants to find their life, whoever wants to find life must lose their life for my sake. But whoever wants to lose their life for my sake actually finds life. And then he said this, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, which means perhaps where I find life in Jesus, connected to Jesus, glorifying Jesus is a life that I realize is not to be served, but to serve. And when I serve, I actually find life. Let me ask you this. You've served people before, probably. Well, at some point, inevitably, but more so like you've gone to a mission trip or you've gone to maybe a project Tallahassee, you've gone to something where you served. And you know what you felt? awful no afterwards you thought man i feel good i feel good about that and maybe somewhere in there that was there there was this little like conflict of do i feel good because i've done good or do i just feel good because i haven't really done anything good but i just feel good about me whatever but here's what i would say Perhaps that feeling that you felt when you actually stop for a second in this self-consumed life, in this self-consumed culture. Perhaps what you experienced in that moment was a little bit of the selflessness of the gospel. That God so loved that he gave. And you have been loved and so you give. And your belief system, your mindset, your mental framework, your identity is Christ. The way you see this world is that, you know what? The way that I find life is not by trying to better my life, but it's by trying to serve you and help you to come to know Jesus better. Perhaps, perhaps that's where I actually experience the abundant life. Perhaps that's for me. In fact, I know definitively for me, that is the thing that just lights me up, that gets me going, is that when I get the opportunity to love and to serve and help somebody take a step closer to Jesus, man, there is nothing better. And I don't do it because I have to. I actually enjoy it. I actually enjoy it. I don't have to fight against my internal will because that has become my identity. Now let me paint a picture for what this could and should look like and I'm going to give you one thing to do to take home and do with all this content. The unfortunate reality that often happens in Christian circles is, again, we are selfless with an event-based thing that we just decide to, you know, pick up the responsibility, pick up the other's focusedness of the gospel, and do it at a time when we were had an event. But what if instead we came together, and when we served together at a Project Tallahassee, or what if we served together on a mission trip? We went domestically, we went somewhere overseas. And what if when we served communally and congregationally, 
That was simply with a different or a bigger group of people, but our level of selflessness and service was the same. In other words, what if we decided, you know what, we're going to go to East Angola, Africa, and we're going to go help dig wells over there. But when we did that, we said, you know what, honestly, it's the same level of selflessness. It's just a different place and in a different context, but it's the same level of selflessness. Like, what if when we came together, it was just the aggregate sum of everybody's individual life? Because I think the world has seen enough Christians who just put on a show of selflessness, but internally are just incredibly selfish. And here's what I know. If we continue to do that, number one, we won't reflect Jesus. And number two, and more importantly, or I guess correspondingly, not more importantly, is that we actually feel empty inside. A life for Jesus with the identity of of Jesus is a life for other people. We don't serve because it's a responsibility. We serve because it's our identity. We don't serve because we're responsible for it. We serve because it's who we are, because it's who Jesus was. Now I want to give you one thing to do with this. In fact, I'm going to challenge you. That normally in this, it's like, okay, so here's, here's our big outreach opportunity at the end of it, right? So, okay, so everybody sign up for Project Tallahassee. Don't. Well, do sign up, but that's not the point of this. Here's what I want you to do. For those of you tracking 21 days with Jesus, walking through Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, the beginning of Matthew, for the next week, here's what I want you to do every single day. I want you to find three small ways. Because we've done the big event-based thing, but honestly, we need small wins to be able to begin to develop that sense of identity. Three small ways that you serve every single day. They don't have to be the same, but I, I want you to every morning when you get up and you start spending time with God and you're in prayer and you're reading, I want you at the corner of your little journal to just write, here's three things I did to serve yesterday. Here's three ways that I served yesterday. People might not know it. People might not see it, but I want you to be accountable to you to begin in small ways because instead of starting with the big, what if we started with the small? What if it grew over time? What if three became four and four became five? Because here's what I know. When we do that in small ways in regularity of life, Life. One, we'll be able to see the opportunities more. Two, you'll be able to feel what it feels like when you live life loving and serving other people. Number three is that you'll actually begin to live out the gospel. The end of this whole series is a life of selflessness. But our life of selflessness is reflective of Jesus' selflessness. And Jesus was selfless every day. Three ways. Three things. They could be the same. They could be different. And I'm hoping and praying that there's three lead to four and four lead to five and five lead to six and six lead to seven. But I want you to find three ways that you would not normally serve. I'm running out of time, but let me just give a couple thoughts. Um, husbands, what's one way that your wife needs to be served that you have been selfish? Maybe that's one. Students, what's one way that you can walk into your classroom and serve the people in your classroom, whether or not they realize it or not? What's one way that you can serve your roommate? Kids? Not kids. What kids? Middle school, high school? Let me ask you this. This is going to sound like Dale's on a chalkboard. What's one way that you can serve your parents? 
Parents, you do this all the time with your kids. But what's one way that you can uniquely serve them? What's one way that you can serve at the restaurant when you leave here? What's one way that you can serve in the parking lot? Here's my prayer. Is that when we serve together as a church family, when we begin to lean into what God has called us to, it is simply the aggregate total of the individuals who have a heart who are regularly serving because they realize if God would love me and if God would serve me, I will serve you. If God would humble himself, I will humble myself. And in that, I have found life. Let's pray. Jesus, I ask and pray that for many of us who have a set of outcomes and we've tried to change them in our decisions, but we have the same belief that I need to look out for me and I need to do what's best for me and I need to live my reality and my truth and to the disacknowledgement of the people around us. But God, you so loved us you, though full divinity, became humanity. We're enslaved and then we're crucified for us. But not because you had to, but because that manifestation was simply who you were the entire time. You're a God who loves and a God who serves. You're a God who served us by giving us yourself on the cross. And as we acknowledge how we've been served by you, would that be the motivation, as your spirit lives inside of us, would that be the motivation that we realize if the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, that you have come that we may have a life and have it to the full, and that the way to find life is to lose our life. Would you help us simply to start building this identity in you, Jesus, building this identity in your gospel, King Jesus, by simply beginning to serve in small and minute and sometimes unknown noticeable ways. I pray that we would have such a sense of selflessness, but a humble selflessness, not a self-righteous selflessness, because that's who you were, King Jesus. You loved us and you served us. And I pray that this world, this city, our campuses, neighborhoods, and our families, and our hearts and lives would change as we served because you served us. We don't do it out of responsibility. It's our identity. We don't have to. We get to. Because that's what you did for us. And I pray that the vision of this church is that we would always be a reflection of the way that you loved and served us. Jesus. Would you give us the wisdom to see three ways to serve every single day? And would you give us the courage to do it? Would you change our hearts, change our lives, change our identities, our mindsets and our frameworks to be like yours, King Jesus? And it's in your name we pray. Amen.